I'm going to uh, largely build upon uh, what Pete May has just done went there with the 1 Corinthians 15 creed. Um, I think there's lots of other things that could be said uh, in support of some of the, uh, the statement claims, the sort of basic sort of data that one's working with to try and sort out what the best explanation of that data is. Um, that's why I've uh, sort of subtitled this worldview data and explanation and the, the interaction between these things in your mind uh, as you sort through what's the best uh, explanation. Uh, I'm going to concentrate on four pieces of data, four historical facts, out of a list of a dozen uh, facts that are uh, both admitted by the majority of critical scholars across the, the spectrum of belief and non-belief um, because they fit uh, multiple um, supporting arguments, multiple uh, standard criteria of historical authenticity apply to uh, a list of about a dozen facts pertaining to this area, four of which I'll uh, focus my talk on, uh, but I won't have time to go into those criteria, why they support these facts. I'm just going to sort of build on what Pete May has said. The four facts that I'll concentrate on are these, that Jesus died on a cross, that his body was buried in a tomb, that that tomb was uh, sometime later found to be empty, and that various individuals and groups of people had experiences in which they sincerely believed a resurrected Jesus interacted with them. Multiple, as I say, and often independent sources that we can uh, look at attest that after his uh, death, Jesus was not only seen alive by various individuals and groups, but, for example, also heard and touched by people as well. All of those are supported by independent sources. So N.T. Wright, who wrote one of the most uh, massive books on this subject of recent years, concludes the, uh, a summary of the, the consensus of scholarship on this area where he says uh, historical investigation brings us to the point where we must say that the tomb previously held, housing a thoroughly dead Jesus was empty and that his followers saw and met someone that they were convinced was this same Jesus, bodily alive though in a new transformed resurrected fashion. So that's the data one has to work with in the field. And it's then a matter of thinking, well, what is the best explanation of that data? I want to show you this sort of flow chart of categories here. From uh, worldview, your worldview, criteria of theory choice, the data that one is working with, and the explanation that one arrives at. And to pick up on um, something Pete May briefly covered, really, I think if you have a, a uh, if you took this as a firm commitment to atheism, down at the bottom of this block here, amongst your criteria of theory choice, I think would pretty clearly be something like 
it doesn't make sense to consider appealing to a miracle to explain data when you're trying to explain things in the world or understand what really happened. Because if there's no God, there can't be any miracles. So that's not going to be a useful category to kind of bear in mind when you're trying to explain things. Now, if you've got a commitment to these, then pretty much whatever the data you're working with, you're going to end up saying as an explanation that it, well, it must have been a matter of deceit or delusion on the part of the witnesses. Or perhaps you might say, well, I'm just agnostic about what happened. We don't know what happened. But what we do know is it sure couldn't have been a resurrection because that kind of thing can't happen. And so, obviously, for someone of this position, I think the data, um, when you try and explain that according to standard historical criteria, can pose a challenge to this and, and therefore to atheism. But what I would probably do with someone in that position would be to start back a few steps, back towards the beginning of the course a few weeks ago, looking at things like the evidence for the existence of a god, the possibility of miracles, and so on. If, however, your worldview was um, theistic, say, then amongst your criteria of theory choice, you probably wouldn't be excluding the possibility of miracles. You might admit that miracles are a possible explanation if they're the best explanation according to standard criteria. You then apply yourself to the data, and the explanation you might come out with might well then, in that case, be that Jesus was resurrected. You can kind of think through what would happen here according to stronger or weaker commitments, or what would happen if you were agnostic sort of in the middle. So, for example, Anthony Flew, one time famous atheist who, towards the end of his life, became a sort of minimal kind of theist, but not a Christian, admitted, he said, certainly given, given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of the resurrection does become enormously more likely than if you thought there was no God. Bart Ehrman, uh, New Testament scholar, agnostic, in a debate with uh, William Lane Craig on the resurrection, uh, said the reason the resurrection makes sense to Bill is because he's a believer in God. And so, of course, God can act in the world. Why not? Well, that presupposes a belief in God. Well, first of all, I think that's quite a significant concession. What Ehrman is saying is that belief in Jesus' resurrection makes sense if you already believe in God. If you approach the data with a belief in God in hand, then resurrection seems to be a reasonable conclusion to come to. It's just that he doesn't approach it with that belief in hand. But also I think that concession doesn't quite go far enough as much as, say, an agnostic or someone with um, a fairly tentative commitment to an atheistic worldview could also admit the possibility of God acting in the world and therefore, given sufficient data, uh, might be driven to um, a conclusion that didn't fit with their uh, starting worldview. People can change their mind on these things. As Gary Habermas, one of the world's uh, experts on this area, says, it's undeniable that everybody generally operates within his or own, her own concept of reality. 
Having said this, however, the factual data are still equally crucial. We do need to be informed by the data we receive. And sometimes this is precisely what happens. The evidence on a subject convinces us against our indecisiveness or even contrary to our former position, just as happened with St. Paul, for example. In terms of criteria of theory choice, there are many that one could mention, but I want to particularly flag up the concepts of explanatory power and explanatory scope. That is, an explanation, something that lessens your surprise at certain data existing, having the, uh, the innate capacity to explain the existence of that data, to make the occurrence of that data more likely than not, and also that that, that explanation includes as much data as possible. So if you're comparing explanatory hypotheses, you would judge them in terms of, well, do all of these hypotheses have the, the power to explain the data, and is some of them including more data than others? Are some of these explanations leaving out some of the facts? You could see fairly readily, I think, how that might relate to the concept of Occam's razor. William of Occam, uh, Christian monk and metaphysician, he's been using his razor because he is a monk, after all. And there's various ways of formulating this down the years, but you could boil it down to always pick the simplest adequate explanation in comparing competing explanations. Uh, if two explanations are equally adequate, they both have the same explanatory power and scope, say, but one of those two explanations is simpler than the other, then pick the simpler one. But the, the primary emphasis here is on the adequacy of the explanation, because otherwise you're going for a simplistic, a too simple an explanation is a simplistic explanation. So it's got to be adequate, but then you kind of use simplicity as a, a tiebreaker. Now, the concept God raised Jesus from the dead clearly is an adequate explanation of the data that we've looked at. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then you would kind of expect there to be an empty tomb, people to have met him, that wouldn't be surprising, and so on. It covers all of the facts, and it has the explanatory power to explain them. So resurrection is clearly an adequate explanation in the field, as long as you're not ruling it out a priori against your worldview. I might then argue that actually there is no simpler explanation, no simpler <coughs> adequate explanation, that is, on offer. Charles Hartshorn was a non-Christian philosopher. He rejects the possibility of miracle claims, um, commenting on a, a debate. But he does say, it is remarkable that a crucified man should have been the source of so vast a company of believers. I cannot explain this convincingly. He ends up going for a, I don't know what happened, but it sure couldn't have been a miracle. Anthony Flew, who we've already mentioned, says, I don't think it's possible to offer any satisfactory naturalistic account of what happened. Well, probably the leading naturalistic attempt to explain what happened would include a reference to the concept of hallucinations to explain the, the appearances. Well, we know that about 15% of people 
on average, experience one or more hallucinations in their lives. But with men less likely to experience them than women, and young people less likely to experience hallucinations than older people. Whereas, of course, most of those who are reported of having seen the resurrected Christ were young men. Group hallucinations, where multiple people have the same hallucinatory experience at the same time, are especially rare. But, of course, several groups of people saw the resurrected Jesus. The 1 Corinthians 15 creed references three different group appearances. And a coherently coordinated series over a six-week period of both individual and collective hallucinations, such as would be necessary to cover the data, would be extremely unlikely. Moreover, group hallucinations and the literature in the field requires expectation on the part of the hallucinators. But as uh, Giza Vermez, who's uh, a non-Christian New Testament scholar, notes, says the cross and the resurrection were unexpected, perplexing, indeed incomprehensible for the apostles. As for the resurrection, no one was awaiting it, nor were the apostles willing to believe the good news brought to them by the women who'd visited the empty tomb. It's one of the embarrassing facts included within the Gospels that when the women come back as the first people to see the empty tomb and to report indeed seeing the risen Jesus, the, the leaders of the church that was, the male disciples, poo-poo their story and say, you know, what silly women you know, you're just grief-stricken. We don't believe you. So they clearly didn't have a, an air of expectation about them. Poor explanatory Paris, C.S. Lewis, I think, makes an excellent point when he says any theory of hallucination breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions, three different reports um, from Luke and John, so that's two independent sources, this hallucination of Jesus, his appearance is so-called, was not immediately recognized as Jesus by the people having the experience. If you're hallucinating an appearance of a dead loved one out of grief, you tend to recognize them when you see them. Not to not recognize them and only later go, oh, good grief, that was him. It also has poor explanatory scope as an explanation because, as William Lane Craig points out, it doesn't say anything about the empty tomb, nor anything to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. It's a very precise concept, theologically speaking, and, as Vermes was pointing out, an unusual one in first-century Judaism. For someone in the ancient world, says Craig, visions of the deceased would be known about but they wouldn't be thought of as evidence that the person's alive, rather, that, rather evidence that they're dead. People would say, oh, you've seen the ghost of, of them. You know, they've gone to Hades and Shale, whatever, you've seen their ghost. They're, that proves they're dead, because you've had a vision of them. Not, you've had a vision of them, oh, well, that proves they're alive again. This was not the, the conceptual framework that they were working in. 
One last significant point, I think, this is from James uh, D.G. Dunn, who's a very significant contemporary New Testament scholar. I think he makes quite an interesting point here uh, about the need to convincingly uh, explain or account for the first disciples' interpretation of their experience as a resurrection. So it's for them to have understood that they were seeing the crucified Jesus as risen from the dead, rather than as simply um, translated or glorified uh, in the bosom of Abraham or whatever, like some Old Testament prophets are talked about, was quite extraordinary. But it led them to the conclusion that God had raised Jesus from the dead here and now in the middle of human history. They, they believed in a general resurrection of the dead at the end of time, but not in anybody being resurrected within history. But it led them to that conclusion, says Dunn, um, had been raised as the beginning of this end-time general resurrection from the dead was exceptional and unprecedented. That is why I'm confident that this first Christian interpretation of their own experience deserves a very high respect, says Dunn, and that Christians on its basis need have no qualms about affirming their faith in Jesus as risen. So I'm with right here at the uh, kind of end of his study on Jesus' resurrection, concludes that the historian may and must say that all other explanations for why Christianity arose, what's the launch pad for this rocket, as Pete may asked, are less convincing as historical explanations than the one the early Christians themselves offer, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The sort of reasoning historians characteristically employ inference to the best explanation, basically. Tested in terms of the explanatory power of the hypothesis thus generated points strongly to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I think that the, the main deciding factor in this field is actually that issue of people's worldviews, your beliefs about ultimate reality, the possibility of miracles, has a big input to shaping what explanations you allow of the data but simply applying standard historical criteria to the known, generally accepted data certainly seems to point in that direction.